My name is Amanda Van Annen. Welcome to Beauty and the Beat. Join me and my co-hosts, Betsy Zane and Sophia Brad, as we pierce beyond the beauty myth and get face-to-face with reality. Highs and lows of fashion to the challenges of motherhood, the traumas of life, heartbreak of relationships gone wrong, and how to find purpose and discover your true, authentic self. Hi everyone, it's Amanda, and I'm here today with Dr. Celeste Holbrook. I'm really happy to have her here because we're going to be talking about something we don't normally talk about, sex, guys. (laughs) So I hope (laughs) there she is giggling in the background. So Dr. Celeste Holbrook is a sexologist, speaker, and author who has dedicated her life to helping women achieve soul-centered sex through perfectly planned mental and behavioral changes. She inspires women to move through mental blocks through surrounding their intimate lives to truly experience the sex that was spiritually designed for her. Hundreds of women have dramatically changed their relationships by following the sexual and spiritual strategies that Dr. Holbrook has created and tailored specifically for them. Her favorite moment is the spark that appears in a woman's eyes the instant her sensual confidence is reawakened. Dr. Holbrook says, and I quote, my purpose in this world is to help inspire a woman's whole worth because it's her whole self that she brings to her relationship. Dr. Holbrook, welcome to Beauty and the Beat. Thank you, Amanda. What a lovely introduction. (laughs) And uh, thank you so much. I just feel honored to be here. And um, I can't wait to, to have these meaningful conversations with you. Yeah, I'm so excited to have this conversation with you because, you know, like, as you know, sex is a big topic we all like to have. I've done a bit of research into you and what you do. But first, before we delve deeper into that, I'd like you to tell our audience about the journey. It's a question I ask all our guests about how you got from there to here. It's a great question. And I'm glad you ask all your guests because you know, you probably find our journey gets us to uh, the the place that we are currently. <laughs> and so my journey began growing up in a small kind of conservative town here in Texas. And I kind of had these messages of needing to wait until you're married to have penetrative sex. So I did. I got married when I was 26. And we got married in the morning because my daddy always said, you get married in the morning. If it doesn't work out, you haven't wasted the whole day. <laughs> and so <laughs> we got married in the morning. And in that afternoon, we had penetrative sex for the first time. And it was incredibly painful. And it was not at all what I had expected or what I thought it was going to be. And it continued to be painful for the entire first year of our marriage. And when you're first in a relationship or first married, things like resentment and anger and shame and all of those things are really hard to deal with in any relationship, but especially in new ones. And so I dealt, I was dealing with all of these things, feeling really angry at my husband for wanting to have sex with me when he knew it would hurt. I felt shame for not living up to what I thought would be I thought I'd be this vixen of a sexual wife and I wasn't. And I felt resentful. I didn't, I didn't want to have sex. It didn't feel good. I, 
experience low libido then, of course, because sex was painful. And so, of course, I didn't want it. And after the first year, I went to an OB-GYN and got a full checkup. And I just remember specifically, he looked at me and said, Celeste, I have done a full physical exam. I cannot find anything or any reason physically why you're experiencing this pain. But I think it would go away if you had a baby. And I just thought, that's terrible advice. (laughs) That's terrible advice. Babies don't fix anything. So I just needed so much more than a well-stretched vagina. I really needed somebody to hold my hand and say, I see that you're angry. I see that you're hurting. I see that you weren't given the greatest sex education. I see that you don't really know a whole lot about sex or that you were kind of told that sex was going to be great if you waited until you had it when you were married. And so at that moment, I didn't know it then, but at that moment was when I started to become the person I am today because I just decided I was going to study sex. I was going to study sexology. I was already getting a PhD. So I started to add sexual behavior into my work. And eventually through education and through trying different things and associating sexual touch with pleasure again, I was able to overcome my own painful intercourse. And I thought if I could work my way through this, surely there are other women out there who experience this too. And maybe I could help some of them too. And so now here we are 13 years later and I have my own practice in Fort Worth, but I see people all over the country through virtual consulting. And I focus on issues like sexual pain, shame, and low libido, things like that. Those are the, my, my, my focus areas. And it's beautiful and I love it and it's wonderful. My mission in life is to provide safe spaces for women to talk about sex. And so podcasting like this is a great way to do that. I listened to your story and it seems like being raised conservatively. I mean, there's the question about what age should people actually start having mm-hmm. sex? You mm-hmm. know, I, mean, I think about that a lot of times because you said you had penetrative sex at 26. Now, a question I want to ask you is, do you think it is better to have penetrative sex earlier in order to get more experience, maybe when you were 18, 19, 20? Or do you think that has nothing to do with it? Do you think the fact that you came from such a conservative background, I guess you didn't know a lot about your Mm -hmm. body. Yeah. So it might not be the fact that people should have sex earlier, but maybe they should have more sex education. Yes, I think you hit the nail on the head. I think when you have sex, and we're defining sex in a very heteronormative way right now, like penetrative sex, penis and vagina. But when you have sex doesn't necessarily matter as much as being empowered to have sex in a way that's really knowledgeable. So knowing about your own body and knowing how to keep yourself safe, knowing what feels good to you, knowing how to communicate sexually, all of those things are important linchpins into having a successful first time. And so I don't know that I just was sold. I had like a, you know, old rusty vagina. (laughs) I think it was more like I just didn't have good sex education. And once I gave myself that, things got better. Like it was just as simple as acknowledging that I needed to maybe use a lubricant and get more aroused during sex and learn how to relax in a sexual scenario that I was unused to. So education was really the key. One of the things you talked about was the shame, the shame that women have, even 
way into like 30s, 40s, 50s, or when they meet a partner for the first time, not being able to feel the same kind of confidence in their body or themselves. And there's this shame that sometimes women have when they have sex. Why do you think that is? Like, what's the underlying? Yeah. What's the underlying thing? I think it's complicated and nuanced. And I think that Mm -hmm. you have a lot of probably perspective on this as being in the world of modeling. So I'd love to hear your views on it too. But I think it's complicated because there's so much standard for women to appear a certain way. So I grew up in a culture that said, if your skirt is too short, you're inviting the arousal of men or you're inviting bad behavior of men, right? So even just that simple message is telling young women that they and their body is responsible for the arousal or the pleasure of a sexual experience. And so from a very early age, we put the responsibility of good sex on the body of women. And so I think a lot of shame stems from, well, if sex isn't good, it must be my fault or because I didn't look a certain way or because I didn't you know, perform a certain way when really sex is two individual people co-creating an experience and it has nothing to do with you know, how we look necessarily. It has everything to do with how we feel. So I think that's part of it is truly just body standards. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. I totally agree with you on that. I think part of it is body standards, but I also think part of it is this expectation that, you know, women feel like I have got to satisfy my man. I have got to, he's got to be enthralled by me, you know, because that is kind of this ancient philosophy that, and, you know, because I also find in marriages where women feel guilty if their partner's cheating or having a relationship outside the marriage, they feel like it's their fault. And back to what you said, I totally agree with you. I think it's all sex education. But on the other hand, I feel like the sex thing, as much as it's underrated, it's also overrated Mm -hmm. because I think the relationship is a lot more than sex. Totally. I think that too. And the funny thing about sex is that we often think that sex is natural. And I would challenge that. I would say sex is biological, but I think it is not natural. I think it is something that you have to learn. Just like eating is biological, but you still have to learn how to cook, right? You can put food in your mouth from a very young age, but you have to learn how to cook. So sex is something that you learn. And we have terrible sex education in this country (laughs) and in lots of countries, but we have terrible sex education in this country. And so we learn how to have sex or what sex is through these me- through media outlets or pornography or whatever which aren't real standards and so going back to what you just said about this idea of pleasing this idea is given to us through media that a woman pleases another person we'll say in one way or another in the way that she performs or the way that she looks or how confident she is or whatever it is that her role is to do good, is to please. I totally agree with you. I thought about something really interesting. There was a sentence where you talked about arousal. Mm-hmm. Do you think 
part of what plays into this is the fact that a lot of women don't really know their bodies because the female anatomy is totally different from the male anatomy in a way, even though it's similar. But I think for men, they learn pretty quickly. But for women, it's a discovery. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And what necessarily turns on one woman doesn't necessarily turn on another woman. And she has to find her erogenous zones and everything. Now, for people listening out there that are thinking, I don't particularly enjoy sex. It's painful. I just do it because he wants to do it. It's not something I want to do. What advice would you have for them in approaching? Let's just give one scenario. If someone's in a relationship, they're having sex. It might not be particularly painful, but they just feel like I've got no enjoyment in this. How can they deal with that, with something like that? Yeah. And that's a great question. That would be a very typical kind of relationship or client that would come to see a sexologist, right? And so the first thing is to become really aware. And when I say that, I mean, become really aware of where you are in your sex life and where you want to be. So if she was coming into the practice, the first thing I would have her do, and if you're listening, I would encourage you to do this as well, because it's a good practice for everybody. I would have you write down some words that would describe sex currently. Sex is, you know, a chore, painful, um, sometimes okay, but sometimes I don't want it, right? Whatever words to describe sex is, that's your first awareness activity. And then spend a couple of minutes writing down how you want to feel in sex. So this is your future kind of sex. So write down how you want to feel. I want to feel connected. I want to feel pleasure. I want to feel loved. I want to feel like I belong. I want to feel free, wild, erotic, whatever those words are. Write down your feeling words to how you want to feel in sex. And once you know those feeling words, then you can start to attach behaviors. Because all of our behaviors we do because we want to feel a certain way. And so if we know how we want to feel in sex, I want to feel connection, I want to feel pleasure, then we can start creating the behaviors that help us feel connection and pleasure. So here's where body exploration maybe comes in. Maybe if she doesn't feel pleasure in sex, maybe the behavior now is to explore her own body and to get in touch with her own eroticism and maybe touch her clitoris or even just look at it. Maybe if it's been too you know, it feels too vulnerable to touch it. Maybe you just look at it for a while or have your partner's hand over your hand while you touch it or whatever feels good, you know, in the moment and start exploring what actually feels good to you. Because we do know that most clitoris owners have their first and most of their orgasms through clitoral stimulation. And when we think about defining sex as a penis going into a vagina, <laughs> whereas the vagina doesn't have as many nerve endings and doesn't feel as good typically, can we broaden the definition of sex? One, to include more people. And two, to help bridge the gap between male pleasure and female pleasure or vulva owner pleasure and penis owner pleasure. Because when we include clitoral play in the definition of sex, we start to include women in the pleasure of sex. And so the behavior of self-exploration is really, really helpful. But you don't get there until you start to identify 
what I want to feel in sex. So then you can plug in behaviors behind. Maybe I need a little more education. Maybe I need to explore a little bit. Maybe I need to learn how to talk about sex or maybe I need to know what I like, right? So all of those are behaviors. But the very first thing is figuring out what you want to feel in sex. I've read a lot of studies on this female orgasm stuff. And is it under statistics like, I think it's more than 50% of women have an experience a real orgasm mm. or something like that, you know, orgasm. Why do you think that is? Yeah, I think that's multifaceted too. Like everything, I guess. I don't need to clarify with every answer, but no, it, yeah, it is yeah. multifaceted. And so the term you're looking for is anorgasmia. If you've never had an orgasm before, we call it anorgasmia. And I think a lot of it is because we aren't encouraged to explore ourselves penis anatomy is out up front. It's easy to grab and it's easier to explore because you're grabbing it every time you go pee. (laughs) But when you are a clitoris owner or a vulva owner, you don't necessarily have as much exposure to touching yourself. And when you do, it's with a tissue, you know, think about even how we potty train our kids. We potty train our our little boys or the kiddos with a penis, we say, grab that penis and, you know, point it in the toilet and shoot the Cheerios in the toilet or whatever, right? Whereas with our little girls or the vulva owners, we tell them, you know, be careful, sit down, don't touch your vulva, like use toilet tissue, like it's dirty. We are already setting up our kids to not want to explore their vulvas. (laughs) And so when it comes to the anorgasmia, a lot of it has to do with just not knowing our own body or not being willing to touch it or being told religious messages that make us feel like we shouldn't be touching our vulvas, like it's dirty. And so when you don't know your own like pleasure system, your own body, you cannot give informed consent for somebody else to touch it. <laughs> and so it becomes very difficult to communicate what you like or to even know what you like. And so in turn, it becomes very difficult to have an orgasm. Okay. I totally get that. So someone's in a relationship, they've got a situation like this and they've got married, they've got a partner. And how do they get, I mean, I don't want to say how, because I already know the answer. The answer is probably if you're in a marriage or a situation like that, you've got to explore with your partner and know more about yourself. But what I do find is a lot of people have lived through life not knowing about themselves. So they get to the stage where even trying to do that is an embarrassment for them because they feel like, oh, he's going to think I'm a fraud. I'm lying. You know, I've been, because they've been pretending they've been enjoying sex yeah. all along, you know? And then now they're like, I don't even really know where my clitoris is. So what I'm trying to get at is what advice would you have for couples in general on sex education and being open enough to to have these conversations with themselves, with each other. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there's lots of great resources and books, but sometimes it's like that first initial conversation with a partner of, this isn't really going well for me. (laughs) That's the really the hardest part. And so either informing yourself on how to have better conversations using like the NBC process or intentional communication, those are all great ways to bring up hard conversations. But then when you're kind of past that, a great idea is to start deconstructing why it is so hard for us to have sex conversations. So maybe that means you talk to your therapist about 
What were the sexual messages you got growing up? Maybe you were told nothing, which is still a message. Like maybe nobody ever talked to you about sex, or maybe you were only taught about sex in reproductive ways. Like sex is penis going into vagina and that's how you make a baby. We even talk about talking about sex in baby making ways. Like, oh, we're going to have the conversation about how babies are made instead of we're going to have a conversation about sex that's pleasurable and we do it just for fun because 97% of the sex we have is not to make babies. (laughs) So going and deconstructing some of those messages that you got growing up can be really helpful in directing you as to why sexual conversations are hard or why it's hard to bring up the fact that you don't actually experience a lot of pleasure. Or maybe you've been married for 15 years and all of a sudden you realize like you don't love sex. So the first real work is trying to understand why that is and deconstructing the sexual messages you got growing up, the sexual messages you got as a young adult or in your first job or wherever, and figuring out how to understand those messages and then lovingly release some of them. If, for example, one of the sexual messages that you got growing up was men like sex more than women, that's kind of a common one, or men want sex more than women. And deconstructing that to say like, you know what, that doesn't have to be true in my life. Maybe I want sex in a different way, or it brings me different types of pleasure than my male partner, but that doesn't mean I necessarily want it less. You know, understanding those messages and then figuring out how to lovingly release them so that they don't show up in your bedroom again or anymore. I like what you said a lot, because this also brings me to the thing that, you know, I mean, for you ladies out there, that's one of the things I always tell you. First of all, you have to make sure you have a partner that you're compatible with, that you, because a lot of this has to do with compatibility. Sure. I can't talk for everybody, but sometimes when you're going out with someone that's not the right fit or the right person for you, you feel like you could not open up to them because you started the relationship on a wrong footing. And sometimes you already know that when you started, but you you went into it and, you know, the very thing you thought they liked, maybe you were having lots of sex with them and you were having a good time and now they want even more sex and you don't like sex. And you're like thinking, oh my God, how am I going to stop this or not stop it? But you know what I mean? Like just talk to him that I'm not enjoying this as much as I should and how we can work on this together. So I think compatibility is a really big thing. But when you were talking, something I thought about is also sexual trauma. How do people that have maybe had sex in their teens or like 20s or any age, in fact, that have had, you know, horrible, painful sex? And after that, because I read a very interesting story somewhere of a lady who had, I think she had sex when she was like 17 or 18 and it was very painful. But after that, it was almost like she didn't want to have sex again. Yeah. So every time she had a relationship, it broke up because she just would not have sex because she was traumatized. Now, how does one deal with that? Yeah. So sexual trauma is rampant, (laughs) unfortunately. And we can maybe put it in a few different categories, like uppercase T trauma, like sexual abuse as a young child. But a ton of us have, maybe we would call lowercase T trauma, like getting those messages as a kid of like sex isn't for you or don't touch your genitals or those kinds of things. We would consider that lowercase T trauma. Or maybe even painful intercourse. Maybe that's a trauma too. And so the way that you kind of 
understand or manage trauma is to first really understand where it's coming from. Like who or what thing is responsible for the way that I feel in this moment and kind of start to make some distance. And then understanding how your body deals with trauma. For example, your, your story about, not your personal story, but your example of painful intercourse. When you have sex that is painful, your body remembers it as dangerous. And so the next time sex is on the table, like it could be happening, your brain is telling your body, like, this is something that's dangerous. We remember this. We're going to go into fight or flight and we're going to shut down any body system that doesn't help us flee the situation. We basically go into fight or flight. And so your body shuts down systems like your arousal system, just like if you were in a place where you're being chased by a tiger, your body goes into fight or flight and shunts all the blood to your big muscles so you can run fast. And it might take away or shut down systems like your digestion system because it's no longer relevant in this situation. So you might poop your pants. (laughs) That's what might happen in that situation. But when we're talking about painful sex, your body is remembering that this thing is dangerous. And so it shuts down non-essential systems. And in this case, that would be things like arousal or vaginal lubrication or things like that. And so then sex becomes painful again or continues to become painful. So you have this interesting cycle of pain that just continues to happen because your body is keeping the score of trauma and trying to keep you safe by shutting other systems down. When in reality, the threat is only perceived. It's not a real tiger, but your body reacts the same way. So the beginning part of managing sexual trauma is managing the effects. Like So taking anything painful off of the table and then reintroducing sexual experiences slowly and with the ability to manage some of those triggers. Yeah, that's interesting. It's funny because as you were talking, I was thinking about what about the other end of the spectrum? You know, because I'm like, okay, wait a minute. We're talking about people that perhaps have painful sex or as a doctor, I'm sure you see people on both ends of the spectrum or people that like having multiple partners or like having lots of sex. What would you advise someone like that? Is that a healthy thing or... (laughs) So this is very common where partners will come in and one partner wants a lot more sex than the other partner. That's really, really common. And so the first thing is just to level set and say, listen, no two people on earth want the same amount of sex at the same time in the same way all the time. Like sometimes it meets up and you you manage to have it that way. But the vast majority of time, sex is a negotiation between two people, right? So if you have one partner who is man, I could have sex three times a day. And the other partner is like, I just want sex on our anniversary, birthday, and Christmas. (laughs) Then you have to find a negotiation of what brings both of them satisfaction, what helps them both feel what they want to feel, going back to your awareness words, what helps both partners feel what they want to feel, what frequency, what types of sex, where they're having sex, all of those things are negotiated. And so... Going back to the beginning of our conversation, sex is a learned skill and sex is a negotiation between two people. And so if one person wants to have a bunch of sex or sex or open the relationship or have a swinging type of relationship, that has to be negotiated within the boundaries of what feels comfortable and consensual for both people. 
it's funny what you said about sex being a negotiation between two people because I had another therapist on the show and, you know, she made an interesting observation, which because we were talking about friendships and she was talking about it's a negotiation. And you start realizing that relationships in general with people are a negotiation of some sort. You're totally you know? right, Amanda. <laughs> you know, they're, they're a negotiation of some sort because you've got to know what your boundaries are, what their boundaries are, what they like, what they don't. And we don't have this conversation enough. So true. It's so true. Because, you know, sometimes a friend does something, we don't like it. Instead of us to just approach them and say, listen, I don't really like what you did. I'm not into that type of stuff. Whatever it is, we'll think, okay, I'll, I just wouldn't say anything. Cause... And then later on, it affects us because we're not getting what we need out of that relationship or friendship or whatever it is. And so I totally get you on that. But I wanted to talk more about what happens in a marriage. Because, you know, we've been talking a lot now about relationships, sex, this, but then there's this phenomena, let's say, let's use that word, that happens in a lot of marriages. And it's usually a male-female thing where the husband keeps on wanting more sex. I mean, they've been in this marriage for 15 years and he still wants sex. And a lot of times it's the female that wants less sex. You know what I mean? And either because, you know, she's had children, she's worn out, you know, she's been like running around with it. By the time they get to bed, she's tired. He's come from work. He wants to de-stress and she doesn't want to participate. And I find like, I think it always, because when I listen to a lot of these conversations from men, it's always one thing or the other, like the partner is either not wanting to have sex or not wanting to have sex enough or not wanting to have sex at all. But in the beginning of the marriage, she used to. What does one do? Because most of the time when you talk on the woman's side, they're like, oh, I'm just done. Yeah, that's a great example. And the first thing I'll say, and especially for those of you who are listening who just heard Amanda's example and were like, oh, that's me. (laughs) So the first thing I want you to hear is that responsibility is the biggest killer of arousal. So if you think about, in general, in a heterosexual relationship, at the beginning of a relationship, maybe you don't have kids, maybe you don't even really have great jobs, <laughs> you know, maybe you don't have to think about being answering emails after work, right? You're just making sandwiches at Subway or whatever. At the beginning of a relationship, responsibility is low. There's just not a whole bunch of responsibility there, possibly. And so the idea of sex or the happenings of sex becomes a lot easier. It's just more accessible. And so as we age and go through time, maybe there's children added to the mix. And when I hear you say that example, like, oh, I just feel like I'm done at the end of the day. In general, women carry more cognitive and emotional load along with the loads and the responsibilities of the house and typically now a job as well. So when we think about responsibility being the biggest killer of arousal, it just makes timeline sense that if she's also taking on more cognitive load, making sure that the cat gets their medicine and that the kids get their shots, and then she's also taking on the emotional load of making sure the kiddo feels emotionally supported in their bad spelling test grade, along with the household chores, there's not a capacity for the eroticism to show up because eroticism and arousal is kind of this healthy irresponsibility. It is liberated. It is wild. It is free. 
It is the opposite of being responsible. And so there has to be some sort of distance that she can go. And so that's when you hear about like, oh, go take a bath and relax. And yeah, those sometimes are cheesy recommendations, but the underlying tone of that recommendation is to create some distance for yourself, for your body, for your mind from the responsibilities that hold you back from being your most erotic in your most erotic space. Well, what I'm also noticing is one of those things like if someone were to be in a relationship, what you're saying is that they should create space for that erotism to come around. So maybe it's like once a week you have this, it's date night and, you know, the kids have a nanny and you kind of, and then you start looking forward to it because it's like the night where you get off and you go out and you come home and you have great sex, whatever it is. And I think that's a good plan, even though I think some people cannot be safe. Sorry. (laughs) But that's a good plan. Another thing I want to talk about was pornography and the role it plays, because I personally believe pornography is destroying sexual intimacy. I think pornography is okay. I'm not against pornography, but I do feel that it's destroying sexual intimacy because I've had incidences and I've had friends who've told me this where they met a, a partner and you're like lying there thinking, what do you think you're doing? Like in a sexual experience, like they're doing something that they've seen on porn. Is yeah. that what you're saying? I talked to someone who actually said to me that they feel like it's destroying a lot of relationships because a lot of men now have this visual because men are definitely more visual that oh yeah I'm just gonna do this and da 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 and as you said sex is a learned thing and so instead of learning eroticism and learning how to like really thoroughly it's like going to a you know Michelin restaurant and just like instead of savoring the flavors and the food and eating slowly with a glass of wine and you just go there and you say oh yeah I'll just have it in the car and you're just like (laughs) shoving it down your mouth you know and I feel like pornography is kind of is starting to make sex kind of like that because the unfortunate truth is a lot of young people are watching pornography even before they've got, you know, like to sexually active age. And so by the time they get sexually active, especially for men, they get this notion that the sex has just got to be like slam her down and get it in there. Right. Right. <laughs> it's totally true. It's totally true. Here is what parents and porn producers and pastors and all the people agree on. This is something all of us agree on, sexologists, everybody. We all agree that pornography is not good sex education. (laughs) Like we all agree on this. There's no disagreement there, right? We can disagree on a lot of other things. This is one of the things that we all come to the table and say, no, this is not sex education. And We have terrible sex education in our country, in our lives. As parents, we do a pretty bad job of creating healthy conversations for our young kids. And so I think that has created this issue of, for example, what you were just saying, in somebody's mind thinking sex is, you know, within five minutes, we're having anal sex and like, it's really hard and rough and there's no conversation, no consents, just like body language. Right. And we get those ideas from pornography, but where else are we going to learn about what normal sex looks like? That is so true. Right. We don't have, we don't witness people having normal 
sex. Um, we only witness scripted or performed sex. And so we have this big gap. Your example is males watching pornography. We have this big gap of males thinking pornography is at least somewhat like sex should be. And maybe his female partner has never really watched a lot of porn and has her own ideas of what sex could be. And when they come into a sexual experience, there's a lot of misalignment, you know, where he's like flipping her over, ready to like ride her hard. And she's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Can we just like kiss for a minute? (laughs) And that's unfortunately very common. And because going back to our early conversation, because women are kind of socialized to please, we think that we have to be an object of this sexuality. And so, yes, it does become problematic. My view is that if we actually had great sex education, pornography would not be an issue. Like it just would not be an issue. And so I think that if we talked about sex in more realistic ways and set people up for more realistic conversations about sex and negotiations and understanding like sex takes time and that you have to kind of talk a lot, it's not just some five-minute scene, or like people with vulvas take between 13 and 20 minutes to get fully aroused, and most pornography scenes are over in three or four. So if we had better sex education, I don't think pornography, whether people watched it or not, would just be as appealing or as much of an issue between partners. But as we're not getting sex education in schools, per se, as a parent, what would you think would be the best way, you know, to talk to a teen? I think this subject is also more sensitive when you have a female child rather than a male. For some reason, people feel like it's easier to talk to it. Like dad will talk to his son about sex and it's so much easier because I don't know, but women find it harder to talk to their daughters about sex. It's almost like there's a protection. I mean, how does one do that? How do you talk to, let's say one has a 15 year old daughter. How does, would you talk to her about sex? Not about sex, but about pleasurable sex. (laughs) Very good. I like that. I like that distinction a lot because it does matter. It does matter a ton. So my answer actually says, like, if you're just starting at age 15, you might have missed a few great opportunities. I like to say that the sex talk is not, a, is not one conversation. It is a dialogue, a narrative that starts young and grows and matures as our kids grow and mature. So we don't have just one conversation. We start with when they're very little, we start naming their body parts by the correct names. It's not a TT and a Tata and a hoo-ha. It's a penis and a vulva and a vagina. So starting there establishes your trust with that kid. Because if you call it a cookie or a TT or a Tata, and then when they're 10, you're like, actually, it's not a TT, it's your vulva. Sorry about that. I lied to you for seven years. Like that's not okay. And that disrupts the trust that you are trying to establish with a very sensitive and possibly dangerous topic. So starting early, starting with those correct genitalia names, and then just adding in things as they grow. Talking about sex early is okay. Is encouraging them to 
touch themselves is absolutely okay. Creating boundaries is absolutely okay. Like I definitely have told my daughter that she is more than welcome to touch her clitoris, but she can't do it at the dining room table. She can do that in her bedroom, right? So it's not that it's just a carte blanche, like, yep, have all the sex you want, like go at it. It is that you're giving healthy boundaries so that they feel empowered to do what they want to do in a way that makes sense for them. And eventually they will make healthy choices for them. And maybe they won't. And that's also okay. Like this is part of humanity. I mean, what you're saying has been proven because in countries like Norway, Sweden, and Scandinavia, people are a lot more open with sex and their bodies and everything. I mean, it's almost too extreme because... Is it in France or somewhere where, you know, you'll see like a 12-year-old girl and they're having a shower and the dad's in the shower naked, the mom's... I'm like, what? You know, I mean, even for me, that's like, you know? But for them, it's like, you know, because they're so in touch with their bodies themselves. They're not thinking ulterior motives. Because one thing I noticed when you were talking was when you talked about us talking to our kids from a really early age and not describing our genitals as a tata or a titi or what it is. Do you think part of the reason people don't want to have that conversation is because they're embarrassed themselves? 100%, Amanda. <laughs> yes, 100%. You know what I mean? Yes, 100%. And this is why I feel like addressing our own sexual shame is a big part of breaking generational ideas, outdated ideas and dangerous ideas about sex. So addressing our own shame is definitely part of educating your kids. Listen, shame runs deep. I feel embarrassed sometimes. And I talk about sex all day, every day. Sometimes I still feel embarrassed to talk to my eight-year-old daughters, I have twin daughters, about sex. And that's because generationally, I grew up in a place where it was not necessarily okay to talk about sex. But I still do it because I know it's the right thing to do. Right. And I know that I don't want my kids to grow up with that generational shame. So if you're listening and you do feel that kind of like, oh, I don't want to talk to my eight year old about their clitoris, that's okay that you feel that yuck. Address it and then still do the thing. (laughs) Yeah. Because the funny thing is, even just by saying that, you will have some friends where you go, I talked to my eight year old about her clitoris and they'll be calling child services. Mm -hmm. I'm telling you. Yeah. There are some people. So that that they'd be like, what? Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, it's that thing of, I feel like there's that embarrassment. And it's the same thing, I think, when we're talking to children or younger people about sex, because we feel like almost like the moment you tell them that, it's almost like your secret's being revealed. Oh, (laughs) right. You know, like that's what you and daddy do in the bed. You know, like it's almost like. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It's like somehow we're we're now like no longer parents or something. I don't know. Like we're no longer safe or I don't know. It's just and it just comes back to being ashamed of sex. Like like what you were saying before, kind of like it's just sex. Well, the world moves on. Like people have sex every day and people have babies every day. And we should be able to talk about this thing that most people at some point interact with in their life. Because it's mostly about, you know, it's a biological need. People do this, but yet they've, we've built this big, you know, you can't talk about that because, you know, how can you tell your kid about that? And when you see parents that do it, you actually get embarrassed for them. I mean, I would, even till today, I'm like that. If I saw my friend talking to her, 
kid, like, oh yeah, you can touch your, I'll be like, what? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it is remarkably different than how most of us were raised. So yeah. Raised, yeah. I mean, most of us were raised not even talking about anything to do with sex. We never talked about sex. That was just it. We just, you know, you learned on your own. Like you said, you educated yourself from books, TV, whatever you saw and having sex yourself. Yeah. It's just that parents now do not have the opportunity to be silent, right? Our parents, maybe my parents did have the opportunity to be silent because I didn't have internet growing up. I'm like almost 40 and I just didn't grow up with the internet or access to any other kind of information. Parents do not have that luxury anymore. If it even was a luxury, like you have to get in front of the exploration. Exactly. Because that's the thing, because you might think your kids don't know anything about it, but trust me, they're on the internet or if they're not on their phone, they're on their friend's phone and they know everything you're about to tell them most likely because the internet is just a wide ocean and Google is your best friend, as they say. That's right. So, yeah. So before we end the podcast or anything, because this conversation has been like really good, I want you to tell people where they can find you on social media and your website. Oh, thank you, Amanda. And I totally agree. Talking to you has been the highlight of my whole day. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> so yes, you can find me at drcelesteholbrook.com. That's my website where you can click on, if you're struggling with your sex life, you can click on you know 20 sex enhancing questions to get you conversationally started with your partner, which could be a really great thing. You can also click on a 30 minute discovery call if you want to get, get on the phone with me and talk about how I may be able to help or I may be able to point you in the right direction of help and healing. You can also find me on social media at Dr. Celeste Holbrook on Instagram and Facebook. And I hope we connect. Yes. And thank you very much for talking about the 20 questions. You know, I was going to talk about that in the podcast because I have it right in front of me, the 20 sex enhancing questions. And I think, you know, because I was reading through the questions and I was like, this is great. You've just cut it short in one questionnaire with 20 questions. Basically, you have to go onto that website because I think if you're going through challenges in your sexual relationship with your partner, if you just print out these questions and ask each other these questions, it will let you give you a lot more insight into what's going on between the two of you. Because it's funny, when I was looking at the questions and reading them, I was like, Yikes, these are questions people never ask. No, right, exactly. Because again, we're not taught to ask questions. We're taught that it should just mm-hmm. happen if you love each other enough. It'll just be natural. When that's not exactly. true. <laughs> it's also very, you know, a lot of questions are very needs-based. So you know what the other person's need, you know, and then you can negotiate and come to a middle exactly. point where you can both meet each other's needs. And I found it was very, I was like, this is... That's why I have it on a page because I'm going to be printing it. I'm so glad. I'm so glad. So just to give your listeners like an example, one of the questions is like, what is the view that you like to see during sex? Mm -hmm. Like things that we don't necessarily think about asking. Exactly. Because maybe someone doesn't want to look at your feet because they think they're too dry. (laughs) Your cracked Flintstones feet. I don't want to see those. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. You know what I mean? And you just have to accept it. Or maybe you don't want to, you know, like, and I agree because everybody has different triggers and and it's about getting to know your partner and i love 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 those 20 questions and you should check those 20 questions out on her website which you can find down below and as she has also told you the website is drcelesteholbrook.com so dr celeste holbrook thank you very much for coming on beauty and a beat it's been great having you 
Thank you so much for having me. It's been just a pleasure and an honor. And I hope that we see each other again sometime soon. Oh, I hope so. When we start the video series. <gasps> hey! Uh, yay! <laughs>